360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. Yes, good evening everyone and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, known to settlers as Berkeley, California. Tonight, Full Circle continues to honor storytelling for social change, the theme of the Summer Fun Drive. And I will again be sharing some of my personal productions and my personal evolution in radio and life. On tonight's show, we'll hear a feature story I produced highlighting Loaves and Fishes, an organization that serves hot meals to the needy five days a week in Contra Costa County. We'll also hear licensed psychologist Dr. Craig Adams as we discuss mental health crises and police interactions. Then sticking with the storytelling, we'll hear from a graduating senior on her challenges trying to graduate and be a single working mother at age 14. Later, we'll hear a creative sound collage of the anti-war activist group Code Pink and their direct action protest. And we'll hear a clip from After the March, What? A speech by civil rights activist and organizer Bayard Rustin, which is part of our gift to you tonight with a donation of any size. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freeborn Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch, Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Freewell and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And yes, I am ready and excited to continue to help do our part to contribute to the KPFA Summer Fun Drive. And I want to get one thing off my chest and give you another reason to donate tonight. Yes, it's my 50th birthday. Check it out.
I'm 50 years old. And I like to kick, stretch, and kick. I'm 50. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday to me. Oh. <laughs> yes, it is my birthday today, and I'm not afraid to say I have reached the wise old owl stage of 50. And yes, I was bored at home just having some fun when I made that. But tonight, I am wanting to celebrate my birthday and my radio evolution with you. And just a reminder, we still are raising funds for the Summer Fun Drive. And why not give 50 for Franklin's 50th? Oh, just an idea. But seriously, for a moment, anyone who donates any amount tonight gets the Storytelling for Social Change audio collection. Nearly five hours of commentary, speeches, and interviews from people like jazz great Herbie Hancock, guitar legend Carlos Santana, co-founder of the Black Panther Party Bobby Seale, Haitian-American writer Edwidge Dandicat, and organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, Bayard Rustin. So, people out there, do me a big birthday solid. And any time during the show tonight that you feel moved to donate to this important media outlet, please do so at kpfa.org. You can also call the phone line 1-800-439-5732. And you can remember that because it's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Well, let me get rolling with the show tonight, and I'm going to start with a couple serious subjects. The first is hunger. This story I created in 2012, almost 10 years ago, and it highlights the loaves and fishes of Contra Costa County. Their reach spans across the country, but each site is dedicated to serving the community where they are located. Since 1983, loaves and fishes have served over 5 million meals. Many thousands of those people served lived throughout Contra Costa County. Here is my feature story from 2012, still relevant to this day. Have you ever been hungry or in need of a good meal or just maybe in need of a little extra food to get you and your family through the week? Well, let me tell you where you can find it. Throughout Contra Costa County, there's a network of volunteers called Loaves and Fishes who, according to their website, diligently feed the hungry of Contra Costa County on weekdays throughout the year. They serve 10,000 hot, nutritious meals each month. Being a resident of Antioch, I rolled my bike to the Antioch Dining Hall, now at its new location at the American Legion Hall on 6th Street, part of the old Veterans Building. On this cold morning, it felt good to get inside where people were gathering for a good meal. When I got there, I observed the assembly line at work and enjoyed a great meal of spaghetti, a salad, some bread, and some veggies. After the meal, I met with Thurston Bryce, a part-time tennis coach and part-time loaves and fishes employee. I asked him who comes here to eat. Well, everyone. I mean, you know, 
Everybody thinks everybody has to be homeless to come here. If you are hungry, you're welcome. We don't ask where you came from. Are you homeless or not? Are you rich or not? We just want to have a good meal for you and a good environment. And so that's all we ask you, you to keep it like that and come on down and join us. So yes, join us, come on down and eat. According to the website, they serve hot meals to the hungry of Contra Costa County without regard to race, religion, sex, age, disability, or other qualifications. Although some larger cities may have food kitchens that serve many hundreds a day, Thurston told me how many the Antioch Dining Hall serves. On an average day, we run about 115. Today we ran about 160. We haven't a final count yet, but uh, they had the food bank. We, we get the overflow from that, so it's a big day for us, 100, about 160. And it's the beginning of the month. Towards the end of the month, we get more customers. Antioch Loaves and Fishes is open every weekday throughout the year, 11 a.m. to 1245, except the 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day but their big days are usually the day before the actual holiday. We did 200 people on the day before Thanksgiving, and I think 167 on the Friday before Christmas. It's, it's a lovely thing to be able to have a Christmas dinner, and, and we're becoming a family here, but it's a big family. You know, like, like I said, we run 115 a day. Although Thurston is a part-time employee, over 1,000 people volunteer with Loaves and Fishes of Contra Costa each year. I spoke with one young man who told me how he got involved. Well, I used to uh, come here and eat a lot. I was out of work, so I just came down and wanted to help out while I looked for work. I could do something productive. So I just came down here and helped and been here ever since, every day. I've been a, like a full-time volunteer, basically. It feels good because the, the need is out there and you see it and I've been a part of it, so I know how it feels to be hungry. and Just to sit at home and do nothing and watch TV is a waste of time, so I'd rather just come here and help out. It keeps me busy. After visiting the actual front lines where the food is served, I got in touch with Eleanor Bonner, the interim executive director of Loaves and Fishes of Contra Costa. She told me about some of their big donors like Safeway and Costco and that a lot of their bread products come from them, but another familiar name stood out. Trader Joe's gives us poultry, we get fish, sometimes we get ground beef, so any mostly protein items, but we also get produce from Trader Joe's. So we get fresh vegetables from them, we also get salad greens from them. We also get salad greens from the farmer's market in Danville is donated. Although most of their food comes mainly from these big donors, she also talked about how the average person can best help by a monetary donation. You just go to our website, um, the Loaves and Fishes website, www.loavesfishescc.org, and it's, you can just click on Donate Now. And that's really the best way because it allows us to use those donations to buy food, and, and we, we're able to buy it in a, a very economical way as opposed to you know, an individual buying the food for us, we can leverage our contacts and, and bulk buying to, to really get economies to buy the food. 
I would say there is a tremendous need for donations right now, Frank, because because of the economic downturn, we've really seen a fall off on our donations, but the demand has increased because of, for the exact same reason, so people are out of work and they use our services much more frequently. Although monetary donations are great, we may not all be able to help in that way. Eleanor also told me how one can volunteer their time. I think the easiest way is to go to our website, the Loaves and Fishes website that I mentioned earlier, and it's www.loavesfishescc.org, and it's very easy and user-friendly, and there's a volunteer form on there, and you just fill it out and click it, and someone will respond to you within a few days. Alternately, they can call our main office at 925-687-6760. I think the primary need now is servers in the dining rooms, mainly in Pittsburgh and Bay Point, but also we always need drivers to pick up the donations from our food donors. The Antioch Loaves and Fishes Dining Hall is located at 403 West 6th Street in Antioch. They also have dining halls in Pittsburgh, Bay Point, Martinez, and Oakley. Their website is loavesfishescc.org, where you can get locations, information on volunteering, and you can donate there as well. Before I was done, I went back to the Antioch location to hear from the people whom the Loaves and Fishes served. This is what they had to say about how important this place really is. Oh man, it helps out a bunch. Uh... You know, without this place, I probably couldn't uh, keep all the food in my house that I have, you know what I mean, to feed everybody in there. You know, so it supplements a lot. So it's very helpful. It's real important. It's real important that people are able to come here and get fed because, you know, this area down here is pretty much low income and uh, a lot of people don't have enough money for food. Yeah, so every day, Monday through Friday, they offer the free food here and, and, and it helps out a lot. It's a lifesaver for me because right now I have no food in my house. And I gotta go reapply for food stamps. So I count on this place. Oh, it does. And they cook the best food. I mean, if it wasn't for this place, I wouldn't get to eat today. Yeah, we live here. down at the railroad tracks. That's our home. We don't got a, a, a roof over our heads. But this place, they, and, and they don't complain or nothing. They, they give us our food. It's just everything to me right now. This is Prewell and Franklin for Full Circle, and thanks to everyone who helped with this story. All right, welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA and kpfa.org. I am Prewell and Franklin, and you just heard my story, Living on the Edge of Food, Loaves and Fishes of Contra Costa County. And again, I feel this is another great example of storytelling for social change. Although we may not all be volunteering at, working at, or even eating at a free meal service, it's great to know how we can participate and what it means to the people who rely on this kind of service. Real quick, just another reminder we are asking for your support tonight for KPFA and the Pacifica Network. Don't forget, KPFA is a listener-sponsored station and has been that way since 1949. 
We are the first listener-sponsored station in the country. Let's keep that going. If you are able tonight to help out, please go to kpfa.org and make a donation. And don't forget, another boost to get you up and get you to that Donate tab tonight. It's my 50th birthday. Yes, I'm 50. And I have spent the last 16 years of my life working here at KPFA and bringing you these kind of stories. Please make a donation of any size tonight and you will receive the KPFA Storytelling for Social Change audio pack. That's kpfa.org. And you might want to take a moment and go to kpfa.org and make that donation for 50 for Franklin. Yeah, Franklin's turning 50 tonight. Happy birthday to me again. Now, while you're all clicking that donation button, I'm going to move on to my next selection tonight. This is something I think we can all agree has been bringing social change. That is the cases over the years with mental health crises and police interactions. We can see the real world changes with many cities now choosing to reallocate funds from bloated police budgets to real life solutions like mental health crisis response teams. Next, we're going to listen to an interview I did with Dr. Craig Adams back in January of 2015. Dr. Craig Adams, licensed psychologist, has been practicing in the field for over 35 years. Before starting his private practice in 1991, Dr. Adams worked 13 years with Alameda County's mental health department at the East Oakland Community Mental Health Center. Here is my conversation with Dr. Craig Adams about police dealing with mental health calls. And a warning to our listeners, this piece starts with a real-life scenario that may be difficult to hear. There's a family at home doing what families do. Suddenly, an argument starts up. Sounds like this could be any family, right? But one of the people in this argument happens to have a mental disorder. The argument quickly escalates into a situation where the other family members feel the need to call the police for help. But by the time the police get there, the other family member has grabbed a knife or a bat and has locked themselves into a room. The police arrive, draw their guns, and move in. And then... Get on the ground! Get on the ground now! Get on the ground! Get on the ground! Unfortunately, this is an all-too-familiar scene. According to a 2013 report by the Treatment Advocacy Center and the National Sheriff's Association, at least half of all the people shot and killed by police each year in the United States are suffering from a mental illness. Joining us tonight to discuss some of these matters is Dr. Craig Adams. Dr. Adams is a licensed psychologist. He has worked for the County of Alameda for 13 years. And at this time, he is working with young male adults who have recently been released from prison or jail and who are now on probation or parole. 
How are you doing, Dr. Adams? Greetings to you. Well, I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And I appreciate you joining us tonight on Full Circle. So, as the report I cited earlier shows, police violence is not uncommon in a mental health crisis situation. Um, This is what happened to Errol Chang. A lot of people might remember him from Pacifica. His mother called the police because Errol had become increasingly paranoid that people were out to assassinate him. So the police came. It ended up being shot and killed. This is what also happened to Kayla Moore right here in Berkeley when her caregiver called the police worried about the state of her mental health after an argument with a girlfriend and she was killed. The list can go on and on and on. Uh, It seems a lot of our police agencies are operating without a clear and reasonable approach to managing emergency mental health episodes. That, along with the dramatic cuts in mental health services, leave police officers dealing with mental health crises, even though their training doesn't prepare them to adequately handle these situations properly for the best outcome. So with all these scenarios, this most likely a lack of training How do you see the role of the police, Dr. Adams, as the system is now? Well, currently, the police are also dealing with the uh, financial cutbacks, just as mental health has been doing for probably the last three decades. I don't know if you can expect an individual who is trained to be an officer of the law and a policeman to be able to carry out the duties that a mental health clinician would be able to do under those circumstances, which is why I would probably push more toward an integration of the two services as used to occur in East Oakland back in the uh, early 1980s. I think there's too much responsibility to be placed on the police officers. They need training on how not to escalate a situation. But I also know that their training involves showing a force of power so that it's almost intimidating, but that they don't get challenged in a way, which is the exact opposite of their regular training. Yeah, and that's what they do. They want to come up and have that command presence where they're the authority, they make the rules. Absolutely, which will which will exacerbate any uh, mental health situation. All right, so one thing some police agencies have done is create a crisis intervention team. Now, these are officers that are usually specially trained in handling mental health crises situations. Now, unless your department you work for has a crisis intervention team, which is not mandatory, it is possible that you as an officer may have as little as six hours of training on how to handle a situation involving persons with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you think about this crisis intervention team? Is this enough? Well, it's an excellent idea. Uh, the fact that it's voluntary is the first problem. If you don't have the mental health system backing you in the first place, then it's almost it should almost be mandatory that you should have that built into the um, police situation. However, like I said, finances rule. And just to be straight up, the mentally ill population is probably one of the most disenfranchised populations in the United States of America. They don't vote. So when the cuts come and the service delivery um, becomes tight, they're going to be the first cut. So I don't know. I know the police are frustrated. And with the growing move movement that seems to be showing less and less respect for authority in this country, I know the police officers are entering those situations more and more frightened than before. Yeah, and it's not really their job because they're not properly trained how to deal with the crisis situation as of that. 
Absolutely. But I know that you will deal with, in any major city, an argument will ensue as to the amount of training each police officer should receive if the money doesn't come to provide such. That's right. It's all about the money sometimes for the training. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about treatment versus jail a little bit. Um, You work with a lot of people who are formerly incarcerated and who are on probation or parole. Um, With the system set up the way it is, oftentimes someone with a mental illness may find themselves confronted by police when actually they need a doctor. And if things don't go horribly wrong and they don't end up really hurt or dead, they may end up in jail where they should be somewhere else getting treatment. Now, once that has happened and they got put in jail, what do you think is the likelihood that that person can actually get the treatment they need? If they're in the county jail system throughout California, the county jail systems are currently overloaded with inappropriate um, people being incarcerated. You can ask the the gatekeeper of any county jail in the state of California, and they will tell you, because there's nowhere else to place these individuals, the jail is the last stop so that they don't harm themselves or anyone else out in the community. But there's no treatment hardly for them. I mean, the prison system is, is just now beginning to vamp up its treatment to a degree, but the majority of the individuals in the county jail system are not going to be able to receive the treatment necessary because it's not a mental health hospital. It's a holding cell. And if the cities are so under-financed at this point, you can go into the city of Oakland, into the public school system, and see the mentally ill right there in the classrooms that are not receiving the treatment they should have because of the lack of funding. You know it's not going to be provided in the prison or the jail system at least not at the levels that would that would be effective. And I assume since there's not even treatment there that the longer you're there going through your court and trying to get cleared up, you're not going to get treatment in a timely manner if they don't even have treatment there. Absolutely. And then even when you're out on probation, you're going to have a lot of them that are going to end up becoming homeless or, or started off homeless. The... Money is not there to provide the adequate services, but the problem is the police are then the street cleaners that just have to continually sweep them up, have them incarcerated because they're going to do something inappropriate or unlawful, knowing they're probably going to be back out of that jail (laughs) onto the streets before the reports are written. Well, before we come to the end of our time, I think we all see that more services are needed for people with mental health concerns. That's pretty much the bottom line. But that alone won't completely eliminate interactions between people with mental health issues and police. So what would you ideally see the role of the police in these situations? Should they have that special um, crisis intervention team? What do you see as the role of the police in this situation? If, if they cannot coordinate with the mental health services so that the mental health services have their mental health version of a SWAT team that accompanies them when there's a mentally ill person at stake, then the police have to be trained in a way that goes totally against, 180 degrees against their original training, which is you're not going in there and if you feel threatened, shoot to kill. (laughs) You're going in there to figure out a, a, a more humane way if the person has to be taken down, to take them down. 
and that just goes totally against their their original training. So they need specific training. If the person is identified as being mentally ill, I believe it should be across the board. I don't think that um, shoot to kill, the strong arm stuff should happen with the majority of the arrests that occur. But especially with the mentally ill, they have to be trained to consider other tactics rather than the, the brute force. That's so true, because I think a lot of times in these situations, it's a family member or a caregiver that is calling. That called and, for help, yes. Not for violence and stuff. So, Well, um, Dr. Craig Adams, um, licensed psychologist, I thank you very much for joining us tonight and giving us a little bit of insight to the interactions with police and people with mental illness and you know what we can try to do to get some more services offered to the police, to the mental health patients. Okay, may I make one other suggestion? Yes, please do. It might even be cheaper for each um, department, police department, to hire one licensed clinician to be available for these type crisis interventions. And so that person would be called upon? um... And, and, And they would join the police force as they go out to handle each of these situations where they know the individual involved has a mental disorder. That would be a good idea. All right, well, Dr. Craig Adams, I thank you very much for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA and kpfa.org. That was the voice of Dr. Craig Adams, licensed psychologist, speaking with me back in 2015 about police responding to mental health calls. And for me, this is a definite example of my personal growth in this area and an example of social change through storytelling. Back in 2015, when I did this interview, I haven't even heard of mental health crisis response teams yet. And now, as we know, cities are working to implement these special mental health teams across the nation. It wasn't easy. It didn't just happen on its own. It took work from the community. And unfortunately, it took many more people being killed by police. People like Stephen Taylor in San Leandro. People like Angelo Quinto in Antioch. People like Miles Hall in Walnut Creek. Like Dr. Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that is what we're doing here at KPFA, sharing these stories and interviews, bringing the moral arc back to justice. If you are moved to help support KPFA and the Pacifica Network tonight, remember, you can give us a click right now or anytime tonight and make a donation at KPFA. FA.org. And the Storytelling for Social Change audio pack will be yours. And if you are able, you can help me mark my 50th birthday with 50 for Franklin's 50th. Yes. Huh? You like that one? Again, that's KPFA.org. Make that donation for me tonight. You can also call 1 800 439 5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Give us a click or give us a call and make that donation tonight to help keep KPFA going strong into the future. 
Again, I want to thank everyone who has already donated tonight. And while you all keep calling and clicking, I'm going to go on and move to our next selection tonight. I want to be able to give you a little sample of the storytelling for Social Change audio collection. Remember, this comes with an interview with Santana. It comes with Herbie Hancock. It comes with Bobby Seale of the Black Panther Party and more, like this next clip. Up next, we will hear from Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin has a long list of social movements and direct actions he championed. Among other things, he was part of the March on Washington movement in the early 1940s, working for the end to racial discrimination in employment. He helped organize the Freedom Rides in the early 1960s. Throughout his life, he fought for civil rights, worker rights, and as a gay man, he also fought for the LGBT community. One of his greatest achievements, though, was working as an organizer for the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. In this speech we're going to hear titled, After the March, What? You will hear Bayard Rustin in his own words as he explains the specific intentions of the March on Washington. He also described the march being planned as a way to prevent a violent summer of unrest. This is Bayard Rustin speaking at the New York Community Church on September 25th, 1963. But I would like tonight to do three things. First, very quickly, to analyze what I think the meaning of the March on Washington was. Analyze why I feel that it was inevitable that these children should have been killed, why more people are going to be killed. Next, to deal with a question of violence about which there is all too much joking, kidding, ignorance, and misunderstanding. Seriously, practically. And thirdly, to make certain proposals which I think we must face to raise certain very fundamental problems with which we are faced. For while I believe that there must be an emotional surge to this movement, it must be tempered by a realization of what we are up against and what we have to do to get freedom now. It is the simplest thing for great hordes of people to scream out in auditoria every time someone says freedom now. It is a far different thing to know how to get it and to know how one is related to a concrete program for its realization. The march on Washington on the 28th of August came at a most propitious time and did certain things which it was calculated to do. Not merely to make Negroes feel good, or to show that when we are dressed up we can behave ourselves, or to indicate that we could come to Washington without bringing that thing with us. <laughs> it was fundamentally that Mr. Randolph and others had analyzed that the truth that there was going to be a violent, miserable summer before us, given the economic condition of the Negro, was correct. 
And the first thing we wanted was something at the end of August, which Negroes in June and July and all of August could become so deeply involved in that the frustration which they naturally felt in this period could be creatively used. And there was no rioting in the industrial centers which had been predicted and was on its way. Number two, when the civil rights movement began to go deep into the real problems, the segregated restaurants and hotels have never been the real problem. Public accommodations are the simplest thing to lick and people are interested in them because the Negro revolt began as no other revolt that I know of in history began about. Not fundamental economic problems, but the problem of dignity. Therefore, in the early aspects of the revolution, theaters, hotels, and restaurants were important. But once the economic problem of the Negro was revealed to the Negro himself, and the problem went down to touch profound economic problems, such as where do Negroes get jobs now? We faced a new situation. When the problem emerges as to where do Negro children go to school, you get to a deeper level, particularly if you are talking about the North. And I want you to know that some of the most fascist behavior is emerging on Long Island where crosses will be burnt increasingly because white people on Long Island do not want Negroes to go to school with their children. When you touch the problem of the home and the job, the revolution becomes deeper. Now, therefore, we recognized that it was absolutely impossible, my friends, for the Negro struggle nonviolently to proceed further in any real way unless we could now get and increasingly get into the streets hundreds of thousands of white people who are now prepared to go to jail. Just economically, it is obvious that no minority representing one-tenth of the people can use the elements that it can suck up from itself merely to affect the behavior of the majority. They cannot create that much dislocation alone. Psychologically, it is also clear that great masses of white people in this country, including people in this room, when the time comes, look upon law and order, in quotes, as being superior to justice. And they will argue now 
Well, it was all right when it was just a freedom ride here or a bus ride there. But when they begin to disrupt everything, maybe they've gone too far. Maybe now we need law and order, which means let the Negro accept his inferior status for a few years more. This he will not do. And therefore, in order to keep the law and order argument truly the argument of justice and injustice, it must not now be Negroes alone going to factory gates, tying themselves on machinery, giving the impression that here are black people disrupting things, trying to get jobs for Negroes, take jobs away from white people. It was that we must now get thousands of white people in the streets to stand with these Negroes who must do these desperate things so that it is clear that there are interracial groups who are just fighting against whatever injustice there exists over there. That is the reason we must have thousands of white people in the street. This is what makes the black nationalist and the Malcolm X analysis totally ridiculous. All right, you're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. That was the voice of Bayard Rustin, one of the organizers of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That was just about eight minutes from a 32-minute speech. That speech is part of the Storytelling for Social Change audio collection, nearly five hours of speeches, commentary, and interviews with folks like Bayard Rustin, like Carlos Santana, like Haitian-American writer Edwidge Dandicat, even jazz great Herbie Hancock and Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers are included in this audio collection. Anyone who goes to kpfa.org and donates any amount tonight can get the Storytelling for Social Change audio collection from KPFA. And don't forget, we're also celebrating my 50th birthday. Hey! So, if you're feeling it tonight, maybe you can give 50 for Franklin's 50th. (laughs) I know, funny, right? But I am marking 16 years here at KPFA in 2021. And tonight, you are hearing not only these great stories, but you're also getting an open time capsule on my radio evolution. Give us a click right now at kpfa.org and make a donation tonight. If you want, you can also use the phone and call us at 1-800-HEY-KPFA. That's 1-800-439-5732. I want to thank you all right now who have already donated. I appreciate the major support tonight and all the birthday wishes and all of those 50s for Franklin's 50th. Thank you so much. If you haven't yet made that donation tonight, please go visit kpfa.org and make a donation. And I'll thank those of you who haven't donated yet in advance. And let's get on to our next piece tonight. In 2009 and 2014 as well, I returned to the high school I graduated from to work with some kids to produce a special production live from Live Oak High School in Antioch. During the show, student host interviewed teachers and students about what high school life was like. Some students wrote commentaries 
about their struggles getting to graduation. Here is one young woman's story as she describes trying to navigate the school system while becoming a single working mother at age 14. My principal always reminds us it's not where we start out, but where you end up. Let me, Alejandra Valenzuela, tell you my story and where I plan to go from here. At the age of 14, I became pregnant. I found out when I was three months into my high school year. I was barely starting out in high school and already had a huge problem to deal with, pregnancy. Before the end of the first semester, I transferred to Prospect so I wouldn't lose any credits. While attending Prospects, I wasn't able to get the classes I needed. The next year, I went back to Antioch High School. I was doing well there, but never had a chance to do any homework because I had a five-month-old baby at home. A couple of months later, my parents moved to Oakley, and I moved out on my own. When summer came, I had to go to summer school. But since I didn't have a babysitter, I had to wake up at 4 a.m., go to Oakley to drop off my baby, and take the bus back to Antioch every day. I ended up quitting summer school. At the beginning of the next school year, I was failing some of my classes. I missed a lot of days during the first semester, and by the second semester, I just stopped showing up because I couldn't find a babysitter. I was very happy when I was able to come to Live Oak. I like it here. I come to school for approximately four hours. This allows me to spend more time at home. During my first quarter at Live Oak, I was on honor roll. Second quarter, I was on Dean's List. Third quarter, honor roll again. I was also nominated for Studio of the Month. Because of my Live Oak schedule, I was even able to get a job. The road to graduation for me has been very difficult at times, but coming to Live Oak has lightened the load for me. I work long hours and get little sleep, but due to the help I get from the Live Oak staff and principal, I will be able to graduate in June. After graduation, I plan on going to Los Modanos College to get an associate's degree in social work. Afterwards, I plan on going to a state university to get a bachelor's degree in social work. Once I am done with school, I plan to go to work with Brighter Beginnings, a nonprofit organization helping teen parents. I would love to give other teen parents the same love and support they have given me. In the end, I found out that what really matters about my education is what I learned during this time and how I plan to use it. I've come too far to turn around now. I plan to press on to see where this journey that I'm on will take me. All right, welcome back to Full Circle. This is 94.1 KPFA worldwide at kpfa.org. That was Alejandra Valenzuela speaking in 2014 about her struggles trying to graduate high school while raising a child. We are starting to get a little short on time tonight, and I have one more piece of my radio evolution to share. If you appreciate stories like the brave young woman who you just heard, head over to kpfa.org and make a donation of any size. And remember, if you're feeling like you want to celebrate my birthday with me tonight, my 50th birthday, maybe you can give 50 for Franklin's 50th. 
Do that right now at kpfa.org. And again, I appreciate all the people logging on and clicking on that donate tab. Um, it really makes me feel good to let uh, to see that you're all celebrating my birthday with me tonight. So let's get into our last piece tonight. And this is one I feel like anyone left or right or center in your political leanings can appreciate. It doesn't matter where you fall on the scale. Code Pink, the anti-war activists, are there to hold all politicians and governments accountable. Check out this sound collage of some of Code Pink's direct actions. And don't forget, while you're listening, head over to kpfa.org and make that donation. Check it out. This is Code Pink. Code Pink. Code Pink protesting. I want to Kathy, who like the spouse of many other public servants and intelligence professionals. Mothers who lost children in a terrible drone strike in Vietnam, Pakistan, Somalia, and who else? Who else? Who else? Code Pink is an awesome grassroots women's peace organization. It's Halloween, and this is the real House of Horrors Marine Recruiting Station action. You see that we have made the House of Horrors. You can see people dressed as um, some of the horrors of war. Code Pink. Code Pink. Code Pink. 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 Um, there are a lot of rude things about our policies. Speaking out is actually not rude, but it's the basis of a democratic society where people use their voices to try to make our country better and our policies I don't, I don't think more in line with the rule of law. Disagree with you. And so they often get dismissed because they do the one thing in Washington that's unacceptable. They are rude to other people in Washington. But of course, in Washington, no one gives a damn about that. for the criteria of these 
assassin drones. He's killing of American citizens as well as Pakistanis, as Yemenis, as Somalis. And don't forget the Afghans. 400 drone attacks in Afghanistan last year alone. The women's anti-war group, Code Pink. So we feel that our country, from the White House to the Congress, has been involved in scandalous acts that has really marred the moral character of this nation. And we're here to say that we will dedicate ourselves on today, the International Human Rights Day, to devotion to the concept of human rights as declared by the United Nations. And we are determined to keep on our struggle until our country becomes a country that upholds those basic values. Yeah, I think it's working much more. Nobody else is doing anything. Nobody is doing anything. A small group of people can make the difference, and that's what we're really trying to do. Code pink, 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 pink. Yes, welcome back to Full Circle and my 50th birthday celebration. That was a sound collage I made to show the work of anti-war activist Code Pink in action. I only have a minute or two left to raise some funds for KPFA tonight. If you appreciated some of the stories or sounds you heard tonight, please get over to kpfa.org and make any donation you can. Remember, anyone who donates tonight gets the KPFA Storytelling for Social Change audio collection with Carlos Santana, Herbie Hancock, Bobby Seale, among many others. And remember, if you're feeling like celebrating my 50th birthday with me, maybe you can give 50 for Franklin's 50th. One last time before I go tonight, head over to kpfa.org or you can call one 800 439 Five seven three two. That's one eight hundred. Hey, KPFA. Just a quick recap and a reminder: this is my fiftieth birthday on air celebration. Yeah. So if you are feeling it tonight, please go to kpfa.org, click on that donate tab, and wish me a happy birthday with fifty for Franklin's fiftieth. Yeah. And just a quick recap of some of my radio evolution tonight. We heard my story, Living on the Edge of Food, and that was highlighting loaves and fishes of Contra Costa County. We also heard my interview with Dr. Craig Adams from 2015 talking about mental health crises and police interactions. That was in 2015. Now we're seeing the whole nation or many places across the nation looking to implement 
mental health crisis response teams. And this is because we share these type of stories and learn about these type of situations. We also heard a commentary from a high school graduate who was dealing with pregnancy at the age of 14, moving out on her own at 15 and getting a job. These are the type of stories I got to share tonight, along with my Code Pink sound collage that you just heard talking about direct action. Give us a call. Give us a click. KPFA.org. 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight for links to past shows and more information on the topics we discuss on Full Circle. Let me give a big shout out to the Full Circle crew. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And again, me, Freewell and Franklin, the birthday boy. I am the technical director for this show, Full Circle, and I have also been your host tonight. Everyone, thank you for the birthday wishes, and don't forget, you still got time to get in and give 50 for Franklin's 50th. Head over to kpfa.org and wish me a happy birthday. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to please, while you're out there, protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA because up next is La Onda Pajita. Good night, everyone.